What's going on, everybody? Welcome to Making the Turn, the premier green industry podcast that highlights professionals across many areas, including golf course management, sports turf, sales, business, education, landscaping, and more. Making the Turn is hosted by me, BJ Parker. I've spent nearly 25 years in the green industry, mostly as a golf course superintendent, and now I want to bring the knowledge and insight from myself and the many people I've met and continue to meet along the way. Making the Turn will provide valuable content for those looking to learn from others, gain useful tips and tricks, and be better in their daily lives. You can find Making the Turn on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please be sure to rate, review, share, and subscribe. It helps keep the podcast growing and getting better. Thanks for listening, and welcome to another episode of the Making the Turn podcast. All right, what's going on, everybody? Back for another episode of Making the Turn, sitting in with my man. Been on the episode before, Dr. Jim Brosnan. How you doing, sir? I'm good, BJ. How are you? I'm good, man. Uh, Appreciate you doing this, taking the time uh, in quarantine land to... uh, chat with me for a minute it's glad to have you back on yeah i know it's good to be here and it's it's uh it's been an interesting spring for sure uh i don't think when we were all together at the tta conference uh anybody saw this coming but here we are now well um how are things with you uh right now kind of tell me what's going on with you so things are good you know family wise my families we're all healthy and happy and getting through it yep. kind of learning to appreciate my eight-year-old daughter's teachers maybe a little more than we did before sure. this all started. Yep. Um, but, you know, that's all that's all good. And then, you know, work-wise at UT, I mean, obviously they moved students off campus pretty quickly and kind of brought everything online from a classroom perspective. And, right. You know, from a, a research perspective and an extension perspective, we can, we can still do what we need to do. I've been telling folks it's just – you know, it feels like this time of year, it usually moves about 80 miles an hour and it's moving about 25 or 30. But, you know, with the strength of the group up there that we have as a turf team, yeah, you know, we're all committed to continuing to serve the industry no matter what the situation is. And, and uh, we're doing it. It's just kind of a new normal. It's been just some things to get used to in terms of me needing to have social distancing plans for our groups and how we go about kind of day-to-day ops of things from mowing to, you know, putting out treatments or collecting data or just, they're just a lot more intentional this year than maybe they have been in the past because that's, that's the world we're in. Yeah. What sort of things are you, are you having to do put in place? I mean, obviously all the, the measures that everybody else is doing, are you having to do anything in particular? Are you guys kind of being able to go through your normal routine, but just like you said, in a new normal style way? I think it's, I think it probably mirrors a lot of what I hear about some of the golf operations and sports surf operations doing where it's just kind of labor adjustments, right? Where, you know, and, you know, instead of having six people at the research forum at one time, now it's a little bit more strategic about, Who's going to be there? What are they going to be doing? We don't want to have more than one person, you know, in a, in a tight place like a greenhouse, for example. Yep. Um, so there's just a lot more thought on the front end about kind of the labor assi- assignments and labor scheduling yeah. than there ever has been before. Um, but, you know, whatever's needed to continue to have things move forward is important. You yep. know, I, 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 um, as my colleagues were and, and colleagues across the country at different universities, we had to fill out a lot of paperwork to talk about our programs and, and, you know, what components were essential and what components could be tabled. And, you know, we're lucky to have a, a good administration at UT that, you know, recognize that we, we need to be operating and in, in doing the work that we do to support the industry because, right. The industry in Tennessee is still open. I mean, sure. golf courses are open, and I know there are there are some community sports fields and parks and recs operations that are closed. But um, you know, golf wise, things are open. The lawn care industry is open, and the problems are still there, and the needs are still there, and the yep. the support's still needed. And that's what we're here to do. So we're gonna we're gonna do it in the new normal. Yeah, that's what I've kind of noticed. You know, I, in being in our industry, it just kind of like I was telling you earlier, just kind of just feels like we're just kind of 
kind of the, the the situation is just really moving forward. I mean, there's a lot of there's you know at golf courses you're seeing the the things that they're doing with the whether it's one person per cart. You're seeing all that stuff, right? And but I I mean for me it's like I'm still going and working. I still see lawn care people out mowing. People are wanting their their yards and everything taken care of, and and uh, it's kind of an industry that. If you go to the grocery store, that's where you see I get a little weirded out or, you know, about what's really going on because I really don't see it very much in my normal every day. And I just haven't I haven't really had to stay in or do anything. And and uh, so it, even though it's in weird times it, it for our industry, I feel like the guys are and gals are doing everything they can to kind of, like you said, just get through the new normal and, and keep after it because nothing slows down. We can't stop. I mean, it's just. Is is just not the not not the world we live in, I guess. No, I think that's right, and and you know it certainly has made me proud to be part of the turf industry. Yep. You know, in our state, you know, with with what I've seen from golf course visits and offsite trials and whatnot, uh, being with superintendents, you know, the ability to adjust to this new situation really quickly and yep. and. and you know, implement the distancing procedures that are needed to keep things operational and going. Like I, I, I think it's been it's been really cool to see that. And yep. you know, I also think an important message that really hasn't been told um, to the extent that it could be is that you know whatever you feel about this situation, and and there's an array of opinions on all sides about it. It's the biggest challenge that we're going to face probably in our careers in turf grass, right? Yeah. It has thrown the biggest curveball of curveballs at how we go about day-to-day operations. Yeah. And I think I think we need to recognize as we're going through this, like, this is a really big challenge. Yeah. And, and I, the turf industry, by and large, is, is rising to it and, yeah. and getting things done. And I think that that's great. And I think we need to we need to kind of – realize that as we move forward as a as a uh, as an industry through this yeah and i can only speak i mean I, i'm a little bit more in the the bigger industry part of it but i was a long-term superintendent but i can i can say with some certainty that superintendents are some of the most adaptive people they mm-hmm. know how to deal and especially in our area, like the transition zone where nothing is normal. It's every yes. year is a different, you're always having to figure something out. And I just think that, that, that makes us unique. And I know you see that, you know, being that you've dealt with a lot of us, but even, even in other areas where superintendents, they have to be, they wear so many hats and these types of things are where we kind of shine. It's kind of, you know, we just kind of figure it out and go and make, make do with it. And, and I, and I, I said this on a, a podcast the other day is like, I mean, it's weird. It's different. It's nothing we've ever seen before. But if there's anybody that can handle it in an industry that needs some, you know, changes in how we do things and what we're going to do, superintendents are got to be as good a people as I know to uh, adapt and keep moving. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, for me as kind of a, a researcher and kind of a science geek, you know, it's also going to generate some things that are fascinating new challenges, yeah. right? And I'll give you an example. So, this weekend, I you know I was drinking some coffee. I sat down. I looked into our weather database, just kind of tracking how things were going this spring from a rainfall standpoint to a temperature standpoint. Because you know, by and large, I think our Bermuda grass has really kind of slowed down. We came out um, maybe a little bit on the hot side, and yep. and that's really checked. And now we've had this climate, which as a weed science person, has been great. We've had great weed pressure all spring long. Sure. Um, but our Bermuda grass has really slowed. And, you know, I sent out a tweet with some data to kind of communicate that point. And a lot of people responded. And one of the ones responses that came back, uh, and I forget who sent it, it was interesting, though, that, you know, a new layer to this is with play being up yeah, and carts being one per golfer, cart traffic is going to be higher than right. before. And right. now we're laying on this cart traffic on wheat Bermuda grass. And what are the long-term implications of that? To me, that's a fascinating question. And yeah. it's, it's, I don't think it's any something anybody knows the answer to now, but that's been really, there's all sorts of examples of that out there. Yeah. Uh, how are you using this type of uh, format? Are you doing zoom and a lot of the things that FaceTime and to have to communicate more now? And where do you see that for your profession and, and kind of going forward? I mean, I feel like it's kind of going to be the thing that, you know, we do a lot more of than we used to. 
Yeah, no, that's right. And, you know, we, we kind of, as a turf group, myself and, and John Sorok and Brandon Horvath and Tom Samples, we, uh, you know, we kind of put our heads together. We have a weekly Zoom where we, yeah. we get together on Friday afternoon and we all kind of have a crack a beer, have a digital happy hour, talk about the week that was and the week that's coming. Yep. Um, and, you know, from that, got in pretty deep about, you know, moving forward, we have a pretty big turf event at the end of the summer. Um, you know, is this the climate to go forward with that? And we weren't really sure. And, you know, with that, we kind of decided, well, maybe we do something new this year. And we we were going to do a, a digital learning series, and we're super excited about this. Um, we're calling it Tennessee Turf Tuesdays, and it is going to be on the first Tuesday of every month from okay. May through October. Uh, it's going to be a live webinar on Zoom, and it's going to be really cool because – you can go on, you log on, it's from 11.30 to 12.30 Eastern, and it'll be me as the host, and then we'll have different presenters on, and they will share um, their work throughout the entirety of the year. So you come to a typical event, you get one snapshot in time, you know, with somebody like Dr. Horvath, you know, I think his um, webinar presentation is our September event. That's going to be all of his observations, be it pictures or video, everything that he's seen in his field plots for the entirety of the summer, right? right? And that's yeah. really cool. Yeah. Um, we've been able to get pesticide credits for this for the state of Tennessee, uh, as well as Kentucky, South Carolina, uh, Texas, and Mississippi. And I'm hopeful for Georgia. I was actually in communication with Georgia today. Um, about getting pesticide credits from that state. Cool. So we're going to be able to deliver the same pesticide credit load yeah. uh, that we would in, in a normal event. And we have GCSAA credits, STMA credits. It's, so it's all going to be there as a way to kind of reach the masses in these times where large gatherings are just, you know, not going to be a go yeah. for, the, for the future. Well, how do, how do people find out about this? Are you promoting so, it? Yeah, we are. I've, I've been tweeting about it this week. Our first one is obviously May 5th, okay. uh, which is next Tuesday um, as of this recording. And we, we're we going to be uh, tweeting out the links every week uh, on the at UT Turfgrass Twitter feed and Facebook page. So you can get it all there. Uh, if you go to, I think it's TennesseeTurfgrassWeeds.org, which is my website, there's an event, event button there. And that is going to have all of the details about this Tennessee Turfgrass Tuesday initiative. Uh, all the registration links will be there. We started a hashtag. It's going to be hashtag Tennessee Turf Tuesday. Okay. Uh, so if you're on social media, you're on our email list, I, e I sent an email out recently to kind of announce uh, the program to the industry and the state. Um, you'll be able to find it and, and get access to it. And I talked to our communications folks at the university this yep. afternoon they're going to send out some press releases, the different media outlets. Um, so we're excited. We think this could be really cool. Um, we've had some industry support for it already with uh, groups sponsoring different webinars. And, yeah. you know, that's important, too, because industry supports us so we can connect the industry with the end users uh, in this digital way. I think that that's, that's going to be helpful to everyone. And it's cool, you know, with this whole situation, as, as we talked about earlier, it's it's been weird. It's been different. Yeah. But there are going to be some good things that come out of it, some new things, and it may be us realizing we can use digital stuff more than we had in the past is, is one of those things. Yeah. Time will tell. Well, I tell you, it's really, it's really made me think uh, from the podcast standpoint and what I've done. I've always been sort of a audio snob. I've always wanted to – I thought the one-on-one -on -one sitting down in front of someone – was the best way to to just kind of have a conversation and and obviously it is but when this happened I was like you know what this is another way to connect with people that I would never normally reach and so I started thinking well why not just use this to to enhance what I'm doing and I've got a little bit of a you know credibility and a platform now and so it's allowed me to kind of branch out a little bit and then just like jump on with you for, you know, a little bit. And, and we don't even have to, you know, it's kind of a little bit more convenient and I don't get too caught up in I can tweak the audio and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, I think, why not? You know, and, it, and, and, and so I'm using it to, how can I, you know, make 
get the information out to more people and have more guests and do things that people want to hear. And um, that's kind of where I'm coming from it. And, you know, and I see I, I work out on Zoom. I do things like that. So there's just so many things that I see um, coming out of that that uh, are going to be positive and, you know, just a different way of thinking about how to do things. And, um, you know, I'm curious about some of the things. I think there's going to be some even really – Neater technology probably coming out of this that we're not even thinking mm-hmm. about yet. I don't, yep. I don't, I don't have anything that that comes to mind, but I just think there's going to be some real cool stuff that people like yourself and I can use to get content and all those things out to uh, as many people as possible. And the other thing that you know I think is important when you you know in this world where connectivity matters, yeah. it's just human connection and human interaction. Um, you know, one of the things we're excited about with the Tennessee Turf Tuesday platform is that it's going to allow Q&A, right? Yep. Where when we originally put our heads together about doing something digitally, the first concept was, well, we'll record some videos. We'll go out to our research plots. We'll record videos. We'll go through plots, talk about what's in the plots, then post these recorded videos. And then it kind of hit us as a group that you know, one of the things about field day is, yeah, you show your plots and the people who come can see them, but there's also an interaction piece, right? Where there's Q and A and the audience can ask questions to the presenter and the presenter can ask questions to the audience. And right. we wanted to have a way to capture that. And these, these Zoom webinars will do that. You'll be able to obviously submit questions on social media in advance, and then you can submit questions live. There'll be a chat feature and we're going to have students that are monitoring the, the uh, chat feature as things are happening live to yeah. kind of shepherd those questions to the speakers. So it's really cool. And, you know, you spoke earlier about the ability to connect with people from afar. I mean, that's another thing that I think is is pretty neat about this is we're going to have those Tennessee Turf Tuesdays be predominantly, obviously, the UT guys speaking. But that doesn't mean we can't bring in somebody from afar. I know sure. Dr. Samples is going to bring – uh, I believe Tom Nielsen from the Louisville Bats in for his presentation, which is going to be on Blue Muta. So it's it's pretty neat. Yeah. Um, again, I'm I'm excited for it, trying to think about how this can be kind of a new uh, a new platform for us. Well, who who do you did you did you say who was? Are, are you allowed to say who's speaking on the first one? Or? Yeah. So the first one, it's going to be all of us together. So the whole UT okay. Turf group. Um, we felt that that was important because this is a new thing that the entirety of the program uh, is involved in. So we're all going to jump on together mm-hmm. and just kind of talk about this platform and why we're doing it and kind of the features of how it'll work because, you know, some of the mechanics will be a little bit different, particularly of how you get your pesticide credits, right? And that's right. going to be important to folks and how they get their GCSAA and STMA CEUs is important. And then once we kind of go through the the mechanics of everything, I'm going to share um, some images of our pole control plots from this spring because, as we talked about earlier, the weather has <laughs> not been all that great for Bermuda grass, and it's been wonderful for POA. Um, so our POA plots are really shining. They're yeah. they're almost from our perspective as POA researchers too good not to show. Yeah. Um, so I had a, uh, a gentleman who works for me, who many people listening may know, Javier Vargas, who in a previous life was a professional photographer, uh, go out and he took really nice still images, um, of several plots that I flagged at the farm. And we're going to, I'm going to go through those kind of plot by plot, talk about not only what you can see in the plot and what it means, but how it kind of fits into a bigger context of, what we saw in POA research trials across Tennessee last year. Yeah. Um, and that, that'll that be the first one. The second one, Dr. Sorokin, uh, Dr. Sorokin and his group, uh, they're all going to jump on and do a kind of a sports field management overview and all the sports turf work um, that, they've, uh, that they are doing in 2020 and have done uh, in late 2019, so since our last field day. Yeah. And uh, the July date, I believe, is Dr. Samples and Tom Nielsen. And they're going to kind of do a Blue Muta overview because that's something that many are interested in, particularly in the sports turf world. And then in August, Dr. Sorokin and his Ph.D. student, Tyler Carr, uh, are going to go through kind of all things zoysia grass. You know, they at field day, one of the big hits last year was the Ultra Dwarf zoysia green right. that they had planted. And we, we're doing a lot more zoysia grass establishment work this summer. Uh, Tyler Carr, his PhD, is going to be all about 
uh, zoysia grass establishment uh, for sports surfaces, golf and beyond. I think he's going to touch on golf and tennis and all sorts of different uh, sporting uses for zoysia grass. And um, there's a big interest in that. Yep. And then in September, Brandon's going to do a disease control overview, everything that he's seen in his, you know, disease control efficacy work and, yep. and trial work over the course of the summer. And then I'll be last in October uh, and I'll walk through everything that we saw with uh, herbicide programs for the year, how we stacked up on crabgrass, how we stacked up on goosegrass, sedges, kalingas, and then kind of give a primer for the forthcoming winter annual season, yeah. uh, particularly in regards to that, get people prepared for POA control moving forward. Well, that sounds like a, a good little deal. You said it's uh, every, the first Tuesday of every month, right? Is that First Tuesday of every month and from May through October. And so you can book your book it on your calendar yeah, now. That's awesome. I'm going to have to check that out. And uh, y'all, are, that's uh, that's just part of the new world. And I, I love that. And I, I think uh, that's going to be a, a huge hit for everybody. So good luck with all that. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. We really wanted to do something for the industry yep. that we thought could have an impact and, and help folks out that yep. may be struggling to get their credits and, and just not have avenues to do that. Um, and hopefully this kind of fills that need and, and we can build on it and move forward from there. Yeah. Well, uh, what's the, is there any status on the field days as of right now, or it's still kind of up in the air? I think right now, you know, we've kind of poured our heart and soul into this digital learning series. And I think that's probably going to be, uh, our sole focus for 2020. There's, okay. there's nothing out there right now to suggest otherwise. And right. I think to make it go, we're, we're, we're all real committed to making it go. And yeah. I think we'll, we'll just focus on that for now and, and see where it takes us. Well, that's good. Well, without giving a, a lot of your, what you're going to talk about, you were on, I, it was maybe a year ago or so to kind of update us on some of the things that we talked about then and what you're seeing now and uh, just kind of a brief overview of what you're kind of working with and seeing. Well, it's funny, BJ, you know, I think the the last time I was on, we were just finishing up a, a POA collection uh, for Back some survey work. Back in the summer work. or something, wasn't it? Yeah, we, we had finished that up and, and man, I think now, you know, if we were doing POA collections this spring, it would be really, <laughs> really difficult uh, to just get from place to place right? Uh, and in the way that we did it. But, you know, it's it's been a uh, it's been really rewarding um, to see. You know, we put a lot of work into our poet control uh, research to try to provide those in the industry the best guidance. And in this year, I saw a lot of folks that you know we talked about two strategies. I think on the podcast last time about uh, like a one-two punch poa control program or a zone defense. Yep. Uh, the one-two punch was you know you basically make one app in the fall and one in the spring. And the zone defense concept is more you take herbicides of different mode of action groups and you put them together to make one fall application. And that mode of action diversity helps from a resistance management standpoint. It also can help from like an application timing and efficacy standpoint too. Right. And I saw a lot of examples of that being really successful this year. And that was really cool to see. I had some folks tweet examples back to me, which is awesome. And if you're listening and you have an example of – something that you learned from research that's happened at UT that's worked well. I mean, those are motivating for sure. Um, so that was really cool. And then that'll continue. You know, we right. saw that in our, in our 2019, 2020 trials to be consistent again. Um, one of the things that it was kind of unique was that in previous years, October um, tended to be where we saw maximum efficacy, and this year that slid, that kind of slid a little bit into um, early November, right. and some of that's related to annual bluegrass emergence and just kind of how war warm we were throughout September and even into October. I mean, some of our September and October temperatures, and I'm sure you remember in Middle Tennessee, were really, really high. Yeah. Um, and I think that kind of affected our POA emergence patterns. And that's one of the things that um, we're trying to get a better handle on is, is POA emergence and getting us a predictive model for when we see POA, when it will emerge, and when we can make you know control measures uh, put into place so they can be maximally effective. Yeah. I talked on a, a different um, – I can't remember if it was a podcast or another webinar earlier this 
this year, you know, one of the things I've encouraged folks to consider, and and this is more for sports turf and maybe municipal parks than it is for golf, because golf play, at least in Tennessee, is off the charts high right now. Right. Um, is that you know if you have a field that's closed right now for for reasons pertaining to COVID or otherwise, you know this could be the year to really implement something that's a little bit more drastic from a weed control standpoint. We've seen great results with uh, with phrase mowing, for example, summer phrase mowing for uh, reducing poa in the the forthcoming winter. Uh, we had plots uh, with Phil Hatcher with Knox County Parks and Rec last year and really good responses and you know in season if you have summer softball or summer baseball or summer soccer you know that doesn't make sense but maybe if those things aren't going to be happening this is the year where you can do something a little bit atypical right and get aggressive with things to have a payoff down the road yeah i i i think that that there's going to be a lot of different things like that to be tried and to figure out ways to do things differently. Cultural practices will change. People are all over the map, especially if their fields are closed. A lot of golf courses are still open, but some that weren't are doing things different. Some are not even airifying, you know, because of different, you know, they were closed or challenged, allowing walkers that didn't used to allow walkers. So there's all kinds of cool little things. And I talk to a lot of people a lot, just they're trying – Lots of different things, lots of different options. And, you know, I, the, the, the challenge around here was all the weather we had. And just, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm still watching people doing POA work and it's, you know, almost May and, you know, it's just crazy to see the, the catch up and, you know, and the, the little bit of spraying that I do, we still, we didn't even put a pre, we're still putting pre-emergent out. And so we're doing a post-emergent and pre-emergent trying to get, you know, just caught yeah. back up. It's just crazy. Well, and you, I mean, you asked me the first time that, that I came on, uh, you know, why such an interest in POA? Like, what makes POA so special? And that was a real pertinent question. And, you know, again, just to reiterate it, that I think the reason POA control becomes so important is it just allows you to start the year with positive momentum. Yeah. And, you know, if you, if you go into a new year, you got your POA program in check, you have relatively clean turf as you transition into the, into spring and into the season, it's just one less thing to worry about. You can kind of get off the year in a good foot, you know, where if you don't have your program in check and you've got POA everywhere and and people complaining, and now you get into a spring window where you have limited control options. It's just, it's just a mess. And, and and that just speaks to why POA control is, is something that, you know, my program focuses on uh, quite a bit. And it's interesting too, you know, I think one of the things that we'll see in this, in this COVID world is, is maybe a back to basics when it comes to, you know, the five primary cultural practices. And, you know, I was on a, another conference call this week and, you know, a lot of, a lot of entities that have maybe delayed rent, you know, going to renovate this fall uh, and now can't do that yeah. or had, you know, a rebuild scheduled for a, a, a football field that can't do that now. And, you know, the, the situation renders itself. Well, if, you can't make the massive rebuild or reno that you were going to do. How do you maintain optimal turf grass quality moving forward? And and getting back to the primary cultural practices is probably the easiest way to do that. Almost a back to basics approach. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I think that that's the that's the key. It's going to make us think about things differently and how to do them, and and uh, maybe saying you know less is more. Back to doing. I mean, what about the whole chemical application thing? It's like you know, how are, how is that going to scale back? Or is there different ways to do things outside of using, uh, uh, you know, herbicide pesticides or whatever is, can you do them culturally with, and, and, and still get some relative, um, you know, uh, conditions that are, uh, high enough quality that you're not spraying as much as you want to. I don't know. I'm just thinking outside the box that there's going to be so many things that, that happen that come out of this because we're thinking so differently about how we're doing things. Yeah, and I think we may prioritize a little more maybe yep. than we had in the past, and and you know that 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 could be good down the road. It's gonna yeah. it, it, it's gonna be interesting to see how the 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 situation transforms the industry moving forward for yeah. sure. Well, I want to dive into the weeds a little bit, and no pun intended, but um, <laughs> the uh, 
I'm I'm you know I I I'm interested in like how the the in bent grass specifically, and I may have asked you this offline or we talked about this somewhere else. I can't remember, but like bent grass itself is is susceptible to getting poa in it, and it's just hard to to um, you know for lack of you know just get rid of it or keep it out. So what what are your what are you recommending to people in our area and around that say what what are some of the ideas and suggestions that you give people for that are dealing with bent grass on POA control specifically? You got, you got yeah, any? I mean, it's, it, there's no easy answer and there's no silver bullet for yeah. sure. And, you know, there's those in the industry that think POA cure is going to be that silver bullet. And, and, you know, for sure it is going to be one of the important tools moving forward. And there's a lot of utility there. Yeah. Um, but it is not a, at least based on the data that we've uh, collected in research trials over a few years with it, it's not going to be a be-all, end-all that, oh, this is all you have to do and, and not really think about anything else anymore when it comes to popo control and pinkgrass. You know? yeah. The way that herbicide really works is it slowly transitions the poa out of the bentgrass, but what goes along with that is all of the cultural practices to optimize bentgrass growth, right? right? Right. And you know, I had a conversation with a superintendent this week, interested in POA cure on bentgrass greens in East Tennessee with push-up root zones, so soil-based root zones, right? Really poor internal drainage, not a, not a really good irrigation system. I mean, all of those kind of foundational things are off, right? And interested in a really, really pricey above surface treatment to try to keep the POA out. And, you know, my advice to that individual and would be the same to anyone is that the environment's got to be right for bent grass for POA cure to be worth the investment. Right. 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 Because, like anything else, if you don't have the environment right for the grass you want, you're just going to get more weeds down the road. Yeah. Um, so that I think that's an important lesson when it comes to um, poa cure and in poa management and bent grass. I mean, obviously, another thing to, to consider here is that you know trim it programs as well yeah. are going to be. It's not like we're going to go off trim it programs on bent grass. Yep. Um, when it comes to poa management, that's still going to be part of the enterprise. I think low phosphorus in in root zones is going to be part of that enterprise. There's really good data on. Uh, phosphorus, particularly in sand-based greens, uh, related to new POA infestations. So I kind of think that whole matrix of optimal bent management plus maybe the use of this new POA tool yeah. uh, in POA cure is is where where we're headed. Hopefully, yeah. How much how much conversation do you have with individuals, probably mostly superintendents, about POA and bent grass? Do you get a lot of conversation about that, or is it mainly in in the tees and fairways and roughs and stuff like that. In in my time in Tennessee, BJ, most of the questions about POA have come in warm season grass, yeah. and a lot of it has come from resistance issues. And that is a function of we have a lot more things we can spray in warm season grass, sure. right? Yeah. Um, I think in bent grass for so long there wasn't really anything you could even spray that. I think it's something that that individuals lived with. Right. They did their best with PGRs to try to do some masking, but it, it was kind of a losing battle. Uh-huh. And that lended the conversation to be more about pole management and warm season grass because you could win, right, right. if you did right. it the right way. And um, you know, now with some new technology and bent grass, it's kind of reinvigorated some of those conversations. Yeah. I just, it's just been a challenge for me. We help a, you know, a low budget course here in Nashville and, and trying to figure out how to get bent grass established and growing in the, in the spring, in the fall, in the summer, and, and then, uh, you know, deal with the POA because there's still some, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of a hodgepodge of Bermuda, uh, older Bermuda. It was overseeded with bent grass. And so we just, um, we're just, you know, constantly challenged by the POA, and especially this time of year. You know, we're on a trim it program, so we're we're doing that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's working, uh, but it's it's. I think with interceding over a couple of years, it may work. But you know, I think ultimately the goal is probably there is to convert to maybe zoysia grass, but uh, at least back to Bermuda. Uh, it's just 
um, some some other challenges that we're dealing with. But I find it, you know, I've dealt mostly with, uh, you know, early in my career I was a bent grass, but obviously we didn't have I – mean, we it was not as big of a, a deal where we were at um, with the POA. But uh, in champion, you know, it was pretty easy. I mean, that, that wasn't really a challenge much at all. And the ultra dwarfs, it's not on the greens. I didn't find that to be a big deal at all. But it's just um, – you know, it's just one of those things I was curious about your thoughts on. Maybe there's some people out there dealing with it and, you know, what, what you thought about it. Yeah. No, I mean, poet control is, it's, I think it's, I mean, it's a, it's going to be a topic forever. I don't, yeah, I don't think you're, I know it's going going away. There's, there's years of literature on it and it's, it's, it's going to be a thing we continue to work on. You know, I have a a PhD student now. She started in May of last year. Her name's Devin Carroll and her uh, PhD project is, going to be looking at perennial poa in the south that you know we have we have this really kind of archaic definition of what perennial poa is that it's it's poa that doesn't produce a lot of seed and it's pretty dwarf it does well on putting greens in michigan and pennsylvania new jersey and points north yeah and there's not a whole lot out there to really support where that definition came from or why it was applied and (laughs) We uh, we have some some pilot data, some observations from places in Tennessee and point southward of poa that yep. poa that's around in August in really hot weather that just shouldn't be there if this is an annual that's germinating from seed each year. Yeah. Uh, and she's going to figure this out and look more into you know are there are there intermediates on this spectrum of annual to perennial right and right. what are the factors that cause perenniation is it is it mowing at green site is the only factor that causes poa to be perennial is it uh ambient air temperature that causes it to be perennial is it uh irrigation frequency that causes it to become more perennial and then yeah. you know you get that figured out it's well then how does that layer into what we're already doing from a management program of a weed we're approaching as a true annual that maybe it's not a true annual in some spots across the golf course. I mean, it's, I was floored this year, um, you know, visit, visiting a, a really high end golf course in middle Tennessee, uh, in, you know, early September and multi tiller, I mean, POA the size of two pro V ones put together, wow. uh, in fairways. Yeah. Not everywhere in select spots, but really larger than one would expect for the time of year. Yeah. Where, where is the resistance deal at right now? I mean, and we talked about that some last time you're on the podcast, but are you, is there momentum or is there things that are moving in such a way or is it just people rotating their products that they're using or talk a little bit about where you, where you're at on that? So, I mean, I think, I think that is a continued effort about education and awareness. And, you know, I feel really good about where things are going in Tennessee uh, as people are starting to implement, as I mentioned earlier, some of these zone defense concepts uh, and maybe realizing that, you know, the third year in a row of a a failed glyphosate app in winter dormancy is probably a red flag to do something different. Um, I've, I've heard people talk about that this winter and and that's been good and that's a continued communication piece moving forward that will will be there because it's not just a poa issue right yep. you know that right. carries over into other weeds like goosegrass and my colleague at Georgia Pat McCullough is working on resistance issues in sedges now too so that's just kind of a continual stewardship challenge that'll that'll be there moving forward yep. on the national level last time I was on I talked about uh, the National POA Resistance Project that's uh, uh, funded by USDA, and that's still moving forward. The the virus has definitely kind of slowed things down just with university efficiency across the United States being uh, more compromised now than it was in, in the spring of last year. But things are still moving, and, and the objectors are moving forward. It's just at a slower pace. Yeah. Well, are, are, is that – I mean – Again, we talked about POAs being kind of the, the big ticket item. What else are you seeing or are you concerned about, like goosegrass, crabgrass, or those types of things you're yeah. you're seeing a bunch of, uh, you know, dealing with as well? Yeah, I mean, goosegrass is probably the, the number two for us. And yeah. I think, you know, because it's an in-season weed, 
for many, whether in golf or sports surf or what have you, it might be number one. Right. Um, you know, we've we've started to put goosegrass plots off off station uh, from Knoxville to get more of a regional look. So uh-huh. our uh, goosegrass work this summer, by and large, is going to be in Middle Tennessee. Um, you know, I think one of the things with goosegrass that we're moving towards is kind of modeling when to make those pre-applications. Um, you know, I think as the climate has changed and, and temperatures have gotten weirder and more unpredictable, kind of our typical patterns of, well, I'm going to go make a, a, a roundup or a non-selective app with a pre while the grass is still dormant and then come back eight weeks later with another pre I don't know that those benchmarks are going to hold in the world that we're in, right. um, particularly when you have situations like 2019 where you know, essentially had 60 days of August, yeah. right, from a temperature standpoint. Yeah. Um, you know, that's a challenge to any pre-program that we're expecting our pre's to last longer because we have longer conditions for summer annual weed management. Right. And we're not making any more apps. You know, and I'm I'm starting to believe that when I showed up in Tennessee, people talked about a kicker app that they would make their one spring pre and then have a kicker application to get them through the rest of the year. And I'm starting to wonder whether we need two kicker applications. You know, if September is going to be the same temperature as August, there's a case to be made for doing that. Um, yeah. We'll see how it goes. I mean, I think the timing of the goosegrass piece is really important. Um, we've learned a lot about goosegrass the past couple years. Uh, this is an interesting story. So we were, as a program approach, to look at goosegrass uh, that was suspected to be resistant to revolver. And this would have, would have been a first report in literature, real interested. Uh-huh. So we had the plants. We grew them out for seed. We did the classical um kind of dose response tests that you do in a resistance confirmation where you plant the resistant line and you plant the line you know is susceptible to the herbicide you're interested in and you spray increasing doses from you know a fractional rate down to an eighth of an ounce up to maybe 8x or 16x the label rate and you kind of just look at the response of each biotype across that rate range yep. Well, this suspect goosegrass performed like the susceptible, and that was a real head scratcher, and mm-hmm. we didn't we didn't really know know why. So we kind of engulfed in this project about uh, just goosegrass control post emergence in general, and and long story short, what we learned was that soil moisture content at application matters a lot. That. If you're spraying goosegrass and you have really dry soil, like if you take your moisture probe off a cart and it's reading 12%, you're wasting your wasting your product, wasting your time, your product, your money. It's it'll be wasted. You know, in our uh, controlled environment setting, soil soil moisture at that at that level, maximum label rate of revolver, maximum label rate of tribute total, we couldn't control more than 25% of the plants. Wow. I mean, just the herbicide failed yeah. uh, by and large. And you adjust that soil moisture piece and you get a lot better control. Yeah. And we worked with a drought stress physiologist this year, or in 2019, excuse me. Um, and what she ended up figuring out was that the above ground condition, the air matters, right? right. That the revolver, for example, works a lot better when you can apply it to um, – Soil that has moisture in it and the air above is is really hot and doesn't have a lot of humidity in it, right? right. That's going to be an environment where we can get transpiration. That moisture from the soil can go up through the plant and that is conducive to when the herbicide is going to work optimally. Well, think about the golf industry. We have sandy soils in, in big portions of a golf course where we engineer sand-based root zones. So that's not going to hold a lot of soil moisture by design. Right. And we try to keep them as dry as we possibly can. Right? Right. We put them at the driest level for for the performance that we need across the golf course. And this has me wondering, like, are some of the struggles that we see with goosegrass control in golf just related to the growing environment that we're conditioning the surface to be dry and firm because that's what the golfer wants – 
And that's not going to set up for our post-emergence products to work the way that we need them to work. We're our own worst enemy, aren't we? If it comes yeah. to, I mean, it's I mean, like, we, and, and to have a sinister weed like goosegrass that will, that would thrive in, uh, better than, you know, average playing conditions or what you're striving for. That's just crazy to me. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm going to use that in a talk, a sinister weed. I like that. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're more than welcome to have that. I don't like – that's probably the one that I've always hated the most was just dealing with it. I, I would do uh, – especially on warm seasons, I would do pre-emergence before and after airification. I would spray revolver. I mean, I was constantly after it. Uh, I was playing around with um, – uh, no, not uh, barricade on greens. Just mm -hmm. you know, just doing a little, especially in the collars where, I, I, you know, and and you may speak to this. I may, I don't want to sound like an idiot, but uh, you know, the compaction component of goosegrass is just amazing to me. Like that, that seems to be where it wants to be. The you know, wherever there's the highest amount of compaction, it seems like goosegrass just flourishes right there. Yeah, it's an indicator weed for compaction for yeah. sure, and you know that's an important message that. If you don't change that compaction, right, yeah. whether it's a soil modification or a traffic pattern alteration, you're probably going to have goosegrass problems in the future yeah. regardless of what you spray to try to, you know, keep it clean. Yeah. Did we ever talk about uh, – I see a lot, in, on the, especially on a high-use uh, driving ranges where in the divots and things like that where goosegrass is what recovers. I mean, you'd think with Bermuda that it would just kind of heal back, but I see a lot of goosegrass – in you know in the in the divots a lot of times did i ever did i ever mention that to you or no have you ever, that's have you ever that's interesting i haven't seen that but that's an interesting concept i'll uh i'll keep my eye out for that this summer if um if i think about it i'll send you pictures if in it or if you're in the area and in, in around nashville we can uh maybe try to see if you can slide by and take a look at this driving range because we have the biggest issue with i mean we pre-emerge and we do all the things we need to but in the divots, the divots, I mean, in this, I mean, I'm talking a high use. I mean, it gets a lot of play and it just, I mean, it just gets covered up with goosegrass. And by the, by the end of the summer, I mean, it's, it's, if we don't post emerge, it looks, it looks like a goosegrass uh, tea. I mean, I, well, and it's interesting, you know, you think about the divots physically removing the herbicide layer, right? Mm -hmm. And if the play is as high as you described, that kind of makes sense. You know, the question comes a lot about, airification in pre-emergence efficacy and and usually in a standard airification setup you don't affect enough of the surface area yeah to render the to reduce the herbicide efficacy a, a sizable amount yeah but in a situation like you're describing with heavy heavy play and divot removal you know that's interesting you know you, maybe there's a a case to be made for that yeah well in all fairness these teas this is a it's about an acre and I'd say it's about an acre and a half to an acre and three quarters. It's a massive tea. It's really big. Um, but we don't, it's never, to my knowledge, only been aerified one time in, in, that I know of in four, three or four years, but it's probably been longer than that. And, and so I think there's some real issues with it needing some cultural practices. Yeah. But that aside, I mean, you just see this goosegrass popping up all the time. And, and it's just, and it's really bad in the divots. And there's no, I mean, there's, this is a lot of beginners and a lot of people that are taking exceptionally large divots. They're not, their divot patterns are not like you would advise at a country club or professional. Yeah. So it's, it's a lot of where, a lot of random patterns, but it's a, it's just an interesting thing that I noticed that, um, that I, you know, sort of keep my own and, and there's no real way to, to do anything from a pre-emergence standpoint. It just doesn't seem to affect it at all. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Oh, are that's you right. doing much traveling or are you staying kind of home? I'm staying kind of home for the most part. You know, I'm, I'm lucky. I live, I live pretty close to three ridges here in Knoxville. So I go over there and yeah. chase it or try to chase it around every week and say hi to Curtis, uh, Curtis Pike, the superintendent when I'm doing so. And yeah. then, um, you know, obviously with offsite trial work, um, that moves that, that requires moving around sure. somewhat. So, uh, several listen probably know my assistant, Greg Breeden. We, you know, we've got plots in Oak Ridge at Oak Ridge Country Club and plots out in Middle Tennessee over at Bellmead. And we're 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 trying to place plots in places that are relevant and get some good information. And and that's helpful, too, because, you know, you always learn something when you, you visit a golf course, you know, yeah. beyond the reason that you're visiting. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's it's really cool to just get out and, and, you know, see folks in our industry and get an update on what what's going on and yeah. just just learn things. Yeah. 
from before the craziness happened, I got a chance to go down to see Macklemore. Have you been over there? Oh yeah, I'll tell you that 18th hole is something oh. special, isn't it? I, I I don't know if I've ever been on a hole outside of maybe at Pebble Beach that I just was like, I'm I'm just in awe. I don't even know what to say. It was just yeah, and it was weird how it all happened. It was real foggy. And if you listen to Ryan's podcast, we talk about it. It was so foggy that you literally couldn't see like 30 feet in front of you. They have like this little <laughs> short course that we were playing, and the holes are no more than like 30 or 40 yards. And and we were trying to go out there and play a little bit, and you literally couldn't see the green from the tee, 30 or 40 yards in front of you. So we would just walk to wherever we could see the uh, a shadow of the flag and play it. And, and I – and there was just no way to go down and see 18. He was like, you won't see anything. And, and, and it was just that thick. Well, we decided to drive down there and it was, and it was like, I don't know if, it, if it was just fade or what, but the fog started to lift. And for about 10 minutes, we got to see on this hole and this like foggy condition and just everything kind of came into play. And then the fog rolled back in and we couldn't see nothing. It was amazing. Oh wow! But I, I, I was blown away. That place is, um, uh, I think we're we're talking about doing uh going back and and doing like a um like a walking podcast. I might just have like a recorder and just and seeing if I can set it up with uh Ryan, myself and and Bill Bergen, the uh the um the golf course designer and we just walk the hole and talk about how it was built because the 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 hit or the story behind how that hole came together was pretty cool, and and how it was originally not even in that location, and then he just kind of walked down there and said, "I think we can build a hole here," and then they just did it. So yeah, it's awesome. No, and Ryan does a great job. Yep. He's a great guy. You know, it's 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 really cool to see him in that position and and see that place grow and thrive. Uh, it's a special golf course for sure. Oh, for sure. Well, hopefully you get to. Uh, uh, I think I'm. I feel like we're on the backside of this thing uh, coming around. I don't know yet. I mean, I know there's still measures in place and different things, but hopefully uh, we'll get back to some sense of normal and people getting back to work and that are not in their normal jobs or doing their normal thing. And you get to travel around a little bit and see what's happening out there. And, you know, and, and uh, like I said earlier, for me, it's golf courses have been booming. They've been crazy. I know I've got some buddies that are sports turf, that are you know they're just maintaining their fields with no activity so they're they're ready for play and something to happen so hopefully we get back to all that good stuff yeah no i agree i really hope so too and and it's it'll be i think at the end at the end of all this we may appreciate it all a little bit more than we did i can only speak for myself but you know even going out spraying a research trial with greg like appreciate that more now than I certainly ever did before just the ability to go out and be in a golf course and 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 do my job I, I really there's a sense of appreciation that wasn't there before and you know it's funny what what home quarantine will do I went out and played nine holes a couple of weeks ago and I, I was the first person there over at three ridges I walked I was by myself sun was coming up I mean, it was it was downright spiritual, BJ. I mean, yeah. it was just to be outside <laughs> in nature. I mean, it was, it was, it was made me appreciate the game probably more than more than I have since I was a you know a kid. It was it was cool. Well, and it's what you know golf is offered in this sort of you know strange times we're in is ability to do that. Get out, have some fresh air, maybe play with your family or your kids. If not, you know you know, a close friend or even your wife or whatever, and, or just by yourself, like you said, and just do something. And, you know, I know there's measures in place where, you know, there's, that's not the golf, it's not playing the normal game, but it's just doing something and having fun doing it. And, you know, I, I, I don't know if you listen to uh, Brandon and I's uh, podcast mm-hmm. we did, but we just talked, that was a lot of what we talked about was how cool golf was and how golf is going. I think golf is going to be the first sport back where people are, you know, that we're going to get to watch something and people will probably watch it like the Super Bowl. But, you know, it'll be like it's a, it's a it's a sport that connects everything that you want to do and it also gives you an opportunity to get out. I know there's other sides of it and I don't want to get into a, like the argument about why we shouldn't be doing this and that. I I just think that from what yeah. golf offers, it you know, it it is. It's a place to kind of get away and clear your mind and being able to work in it and do that and, and play it, you know. I'm actually getting to go play this weekend, so it'd be the first time in a long time. So, be fun. There you go. Yep. Yeah. Well, no, for sure. Before I, before I let you go, I got to talk to you about your boy 
heading to Tampa. What what's up with that? Tom Brady. Boy, I, I'll tell you what. <laughs> if if it was ever going to happen, I'm glad it happened in the middle of a global pandemic. No, there's. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things that there was so much going on, filling out paperwork just to make sure I could go to work and do my job. <laughs> I probably didn't have time to mentally process the whole thing, but. You had yeah, you had know. to know it was coming eventually. I mean, at some point, he's not going to play there. For, I have a I have a I have a theory. I'm just going to throw it out there. There's a lot more going on. Throw it out there. There's a lot more going on up there in New England with Belichick and Brady and why is Gronk coming back now? I mean, I don't know. There's there seems to be some. I know there's we're living in strange times, but there's strange times going on in Foxborough as well. I don't. That's just don't my know. theory. I mean, I, and and I'll tell you, I. I think any honest New England fan yeah. will tell you that we were all a bunch of idiots thinking that he like all the writing was on the wall. Yeah. Right. He he put his house on the market in the middle of last season. He stepped down from his charity that he'd been a part of for eighteen years in the middle of last season. I mean, all of the dominoes were there that he wasn't gonna be coming back. And yeah. we none of us really wanted to admit that that was real. I mean, I think I think what transpired is is pretty classic Belichick though. Yeah. You know, he you know, two years ago at the start of camp, he wanted a new multi year contract. And from all that's been reported, the team said, you know, Tom, you're forty one years old. Yeah. But we're not gonna do a multi year extension on what you already had. And he got pretty upset about that. Yeah. And you I think when you read between the lines what his remarks and, you know, that I forget where it was published, whether it was in the Players' Tribune or the Athletic or whatnot. You know, he he wanted somebody to give him a multi-year contract. And the Patriots have made a, a career out of, you know, maybe letting somebody go a year too early instead of a year too late. Yep. Uh, and they've been ruthless with how they've done that with every single marquee player that's been on that team. When yeah. the time has come to cut them, or trade them or move on. They've traded them. They've traded them or moved on from them. And you know, you know, love the guy or hate the guy. And I, I mean, I happen to love the guy. But Belichick is a cold, calculated, ruthless person. And yeah. it, when you're not, he's not going to pay for past performance. He's only going to pay for future performance. Uh, and I think that's what we saw. And they're in full rebuild mode. Yeah. I mean, they for the uh, who's going to be the quarterback they did in the draft. I think it's going to be Jarrett Stidham, the kid who played at uh, oh, Auburn. Auburn two yeah. years ago. Yep. They took him in the third round last year, and yep. he was the backup all last season. I think I think he'll probably be the quarterback this year. And I think you know they're going to go back to what they did in the early 2000s when Brady was a rookie. They're yep. going to be a defense-first team. They're going to try to run the ball and have a possession quarterback that doesn't turn it over. Yeah. So it's it's interesting. I mean, I I I, I don't know – I don't know that I'll ever know what to feel about the whole thing, um, but it's it's it'll be fun to see the rebuild. That's for sure. Well, I got a question for you. If we're going to talk football, yeah, you're going to get a doll. You're going to get Dolphins jersey. Man, I don't I don't with, work that way. I love with my Tua going down. I, I don't work I don't work that way. He's he's not a Titan. I can't roll with him. I, I can't do it. There, uh, I understand. But I mean, I'll pull for him. You know, I, I I'm not. I, I love the guys who played for Alabama and where they go, but like. No, I'm. I mean, I'm. He plays for the Dolphins now, so that's he. He's. I just. I wish. I think he'll do great. I think he'll do fine. But I just. I can't. Uh, can't be a Dolphins fan. I'm. I'm. I'm a Titans fan. I. I just. I don't believe in. I don't want to see him. You know, play bad or anything. And I. I sure hope he won't be a bust. I'm worried about his health more than anything. Um, but you know, he. He was a. He was a special one at Bama for sure. You know. So the the Patriots took a uh, a linebacker from Bama in the third round. I think his name's Anthony Jennings. Oh yeah, got to be excited about. Yeah, yeah, he's a solid one. He was, um, he's super quick. Um, not as big, but you know, Bama started developing these linebackers that were a lot more, a lot quicker, faster to get to the quarterback, and you know, could cover because you know it's just a, the world's changed a little bit in terms of what they're doing in football. You can't, you don't have to be as big and, you know, but I think, I think you're going to, I mean, you know, he's, he played solid for Bama and he started. So, um, yeah, I, I think you'll be, you'll have a good one there. 
I'll tell you what, we're talking Patriots and Bama. I think we've lost about all the listeners. Right no, here. they love yeah. this stuff. They eat the football. <laughs> they eat the football stuff up. I, I was I was going to finish up our Brady discussion about. Um, were you excited at all, or did you have any thought that he would be a Titan? Or I I was buying into it there for a little bit. Oh, I lost him. All right, a little technical difficulties. I was asking Doc if about Brady to the Titans, and I think he cut me off. Probably got upset with my questioning about Brady leaving New England, but let's see if we can get him back and uh, continue this conversation. Austin, but we were we were. He, I think he cut me off from uh, talking about Brady and going to Tennessee. <laughs> so we'll 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 wrap it up. But I, I was. Are, were you were, were you buying into the Tennessee to Brady talk or any of that, or did you kind of feel like that no. wasn't happening? I think I think it was when all that was going down. I was still in a he's coming back to New England place yeah. and didn't see the writing yeah. on the wall, yeah. um, and just kind of ignored all of it, thinking he was predestined to come back and finish his career in New England. Yep. You know, I think I think Bill Simmons said it best on his podcast when he was like, you know what? I think when Brady's sixty years old, he's going to look back and probably regret these couple of years that he played in Tampa. Yeah. Um, but we'll see. Who knows? Maybe the Bucks will win it all this year. I won't be watching or rooting for them, yep. uh, regardless of how it goes. But, um, you know, that's that's good on him. He's the best player in New England history for sure. He's probably the best athlete to ever come through Massachusetts in my life. And I'm happy to have been there to, yep. to watch it when he was there. But it's now a chapter closed. My, my wife, it's funny. So my wife was like, when it all went down um, – he, it actually, he left New England on her birthday. So the joke was, Tom Brady ruined my birthday. <laughs> um, and then, you know, I'm walking around kind of just questioning the whole thing, sulking like a like a kid. And my wife looked at me and it's like, she, it's like you lost your girlfriend. <laughs> like, it's like your girlfriend in high school broke up with you. You need a new girlfriend. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, I mean – you know, we we have got to be bored enough to talk a, a wrap up a weed science p- podcast and and discussion about turf grass, talking about Bama and Brady and Patriots. But I'm so thirsty for sports, man. I had to I had to get your thoughts on it, and I figured I'd plug you a little bit about your boy going. And I I don't want to see I don't want to see him go down there and win a championship. But man, they got some talent down there at at in Tampa Bay. So who knows. Yeah, I just to be honest, I just hope they play NFL football this year. Well, regardless who wins, I, like I amen to that. To we sit down yeah, and watch a game. Yeah. Amen to that. I don't, I don't know if it's going to happen yet. I mean, it's uh, may start late, but who knows? I think football's got the best chance outside of golf. I think getting started, but who knows? I mean, yeah, we could be if it all happens. I mean, we could be set up for an epic sports fall. Yeah. When you start thinking about. You know, the NFL starting, college football starting, all of the golf majors being kind of truncated yep. and together in that fall schedule. And then you start thinking about a, a November Masters. I'm not missing that. April Masters. I'm not I missing. Mean, like, I, that just would be crazy. I'm, I'm, I, if that happens, I'm going to be in Augusta in November. That is going to be – how could you not? I mean, like, the first time ever that is – Yeah. I mean, that, and, and I just want to see the course. I don't think it's going to be that different. Talked about that with Virgil the other day. Um, we were talking on the podcast, and I said, "You know how different is Georgia weather in November versus April?" I don't know how much. I don't have the data in front of me, but it can't be that much different outside of maybe the azaleas not blooming. I don't know. So, yeah, I think the course will be fantastic. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, though they have all the resources and a great team to do it, so they'll rise yep. to the challenge. I, I just think about how cool it's going to be to maybe watch. You know, the U.S. Open, the Ryder Cup, and the Masters all in a pretty tight period. <laughs> We're going to be ruined as sports fans if all that happens, you know? Yeah, for sure. That would be great. For sure. Well, man, thanks for taking the time to chat with me a minute. I always enjoyed uh, catching up with you, and thanks for coming on the pod. You've been a great supporter of it, and, and keep doing that. I really appreciate it. No, I appreciate you having me on, BJ. Thank you for the opportunity. It's been really cool to see the podcast grow and, and, and thrive mm-hmm. and uh, you know, keep it up. Yep. I, as I said, the first time I was on, this is awesome. I think our industry needs more of it. So keep up the great work. Well, cool. Before we end, uh, tell everybody again about the, the digital turf grass, um, that you got when it is, and then where they can follow you and all that stuff. And we'll sign off. So, well, short thing, it's uh Tennessee turf grass Tuesdays. It'll be the first Tuesday 
uh, of every month uh-huh. from May through October. Yep. Uh, you can go to TennesseeTurfGrassWeeds.org. There's an events button on there, and you can register if you follow at UT Turfgrass. Uh, or me at UT Turf Weeds, or Dr. Horvath at UT Turf Path, or Dr. Sorokin uh, at Sorokin. Um, we'll all be retweeting and sharing the content with the registration links. So uh, uh, you can check that out. And we hope to see everybody digitally on Zoom. And we'll, uh, we'll, we'll keep on keeping on in this, this new world we're in. All right. Well, that's it. I appreciate that. Sounds great. Uh, I'll be tuning in. And uh, once again, thanks again for everything you do. Dr. Jim Brosnan, University of Tennessee at Knoxville. I appreciate it, my man. Thanks for doing it. I'll, all right, thank you. All right, I'll talk to you soon. That's it for the episode. Thanks for listening. Appreciate it. Talk to you later. 